All right, everybody. So today we have back on the podcast, Dr. Greg Potter. How you doing, man? Very well. Nice to be back. It's the hat trick today. Yeah, I was about to say, we're, you're becoming a frequent guest, man. Third time. So I think uh, first time, I think last time was the end of last year. I don't even remember the first time. It's funny. I actually thought it was more recent than last November. But uh, I guess it's just like when you're talking on like Instagram and you have other interactions, everything kind of blends together. Not to mention, you know, we got probably up four months of 2020 that just vanished. And <laughs> my time is very distorted now. Yeah, we're all in a time warp. So everything going well on your end, you mentioned you're able to work remotely. So things have been good on your end, right? Great. Yeah. So in Sardinia, in Italy right now, and we're effectively extending the summer for as long as we can. Could be worse. Very Very cool. So, you know, one of the things I like about the podcast is obviously just being able to talk to a lot of intelligent individuals in general. But part of it is also to be able to follow up on things. So maybe I'll have an Instagram conversation and I'll say, okay, you know what, like, let's just get you on the podcast. There's more to talk about. And um, one of the things I saw you on the Revive Stronger podcast with Steve Hall, maybe maybe a month or two ago. And it's funny because Steve and I have had a lot of the same guests on. And there have probably been, I would say, maybe like four times where like literally the same week. We never we didn't talk about it. We just happened to release the same guests on the same week. Um, and, you know, that I guess this circle is pretty small, so it does happen. In this specific instance, I'm actually purposely following up with you after listening to that podcast with him. Because, again, sometimes I'll listen to podcasts and it's like, well, I want to follow up there. And, you know, there's only so much you can do in one podcast. So some of these questions are their own individual questions. And then quite a few of them are actually follow-ups to things you said with Steve. So we'll uh, we'll delve into that soon. Cool. So a big thing that you guys talked about, most of it, was about what we call chrononutrition. So I would recommend anybody listening to this to go check out the podcast with Steve. I'll probably put a link there below. But just as a brief intro, can you just describe what chrononutrition is? Absolutely. The way that I describe it is the reciprocal relationship between nutrition and a person's body clock. And what I mean by that is that our bodies have their own internal timekeeping mechanisms that produce rhythmic changes in our biology to optimize our bodies for certain processes at certain times of day. And the most obvious of these is that we are disposed to sleeping during the nighttime and being awake and physically active during the day. So one of the ideas here is that it's possible to use an understanding of what our bodies are optimized for to align our nutrition in sync with those processes to improve how our bodies respond to meals and drinks. At the same time, one thing that's become apparent in recent years is that what and when we eat influences the timing of our body's clock system. So it's a bi-directional relationship. And while the subject of chrononutrition is a nascent one, I think the term was first used in 2005, So far, the evidence is relatively persuasive that making quite simple changes to diet timing can have quite profound health effects, particularly among people with poor cardiometabolic health. Right. Yeah. And I know one of the things you had mentioned in the other podcast was that most of the studies obviously were on not like the healthiest people. You know, we're not looking at like fitness models here. Um, but hopefully we can to some degree extract that information and extrapolate it to our own lives. Um, would you say that in general you find these small details matter more for somebody who has poor metabolic health, or do you think it can still have a big impact on those who are already fit? 
So it depends what you mean by small details. Could you add an additional comment about what you mean by that? So, I mean, I guess that might even be a question more towards the end of the podcast, but we're going to talk about some of these changes that you can make. And so I was more speaking broadly in the sense of uh, when you maybe, let's say somebody is moving their eating window earlier in the day and when we see benefits to that. Um, but maybe we can save that question since we are going to get into some of the smaller details here and we can go into those specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I suppose I'll just add a response to what I think you intended by the first question. If you think about somebody who's unhealthy and then think at the same time about somebody who has very good health, then if there are optimal ranges for certain health parameters for the two individuals, then the person who's unhealthy has a much greater capacity to move the dial towards the optimal range than the person whose baseline health is very good. And so changes to diet timing would be expected to improve the health of the unhealthy person more than the healthy person. At the same time, one thing that you said was that, and I'm nitpicking here, but take a fitness model or a physique athlete or a bikini competitor, some people would perceive those people as being quite healthy and in some ways they probably are, but in other ways they probably aren't. And I do think that diet timing is very relevant for these people too. It's just that we probably are speaking about relatively small differences that are only evident when changes to diet timing are made regularly over a sufficient period of time. Yeah, that's a great point. And actually that is you already clarified then something that I was going to bring up because I think in that podcast you had said something like, and I I don't know the exact quote, but something along the lines of, you know, these timing things matter more for people who already have good nutrition. And I, one of the things that I was thinking about that is, well, in some cases we see the opposite of that. So if you look at uh, fasting research in primates, like as far as like real severe fasting, um, they will show a longevity benefit on let's say monkeys that are that have a really poor diet whereas those who already had a really good diet the fasting actually didn't have much of a benefit and the the quote that i saw i think peter atia said was basically if you're eating a lot of crap and you fast and you eat less crap then you're doing well but if you're already eating a lot of good food it might not make that much of a difference um so in that sense i could see that but to another point if you're looking at a relative scale maybe somebody who already has so many things dialed in this is where they can get some more smaller benefits, right? Where like they've already got everything else. And you know that if you think of that person who's trying to optimize everything, this is where they can get one more thing optimized. Yeah, there are several points that I could pick up on here. One is that when you have people undergo what's often referred to as time-restricted eating or confining consumptionable calorie-containing items to a period of 12 hours or less each day, They tend to inadvertently consume fewer calories than if they were given no guidance as to when to eat. And so if the quality of their diet at baseline isn't very good, then like the monkeys, they are going to most likely end up consuming less of the unhealthy food and thereby experience health consequences. Another consideration is that when we eat interacts with what we eat, we tend to eat certain foods at certain times of day. And I know that We've probably discussed this in a previous podcast or two. But with that in mind, while there hasn't been systematic research on this, 
if you have somebody use time restricted eating and they begin ending their calorie consumption each day by 7 p.m. And before they began time restricted eating, they were regularly indulging in late night snacks. And we know that people tend to consume quite processed, probably not particularly healthy foods late in the evening, then they're going to consume fewer of those foods and thereby potentially improve their diet quality. The other example that I always use is just that most people consume alcohol late in the day. And so if they use time-restricted eating, particularly early time-restricted eating, then they'll most likely reduce their alcohol consumption, thereby experiencing knock-on beneficial consequences from that. Now, with that said, one more thing to consider is that the utility of changes in diet timing probably depends on what you're most interested in. So, for example, changes in someone's diet timing are not so likely to have a strong bearing on, say, their micronutrient status. Changes in diet composition would have a stronger bearing on that. At the same time, one of the nice things about changes in diet timing is that without changing diet composition, you can probably take a regular person who's not fascinated by nutrition, who has suboptimal diet timing, and without changing their diet composition at all, you can quite dramatically improve some other markers of health, such as perhaps fasting glucose, systolic blood pressure, or body composition. So it always depends on the endpoint that you're looking at. Gotcha. Yep, some great points there. Um, you know, one of the things that you had mentioned there, you said that a lot of times people who cut their eating window, and this is something you discussed on the other podcast, they tend to eat fewer calories. And I think that's like one of the reasons that intermittent fasting works for a lot of people. Obviously, some people propose mechanisms that it is helping aside from calorie restriction. Um, I've seen some research indicating that it has benefits aside from just the caloric restriction, but at least in the studies I've seen, it, it can be kind of hard to parse that out. Um, however, we've also noticed that people who eat larger breakfasts tend to eat less throughout the day. Is that accurate? Okay, so there are really two parts to the question. So regarding the first part, there are some mechanisms at play that would lead one to think that simply redistributing energy intake such that more of it occurs early in someone's waking day could change body composition independent of any changes in diet composition. So for example, diet-induced thermogenesis is higher in the biological morning than it is in the biological evening. So it will take you more calories to digest and metabolize a meal in the morning than it will in the evening. And over time, that might accumulate to a meaningful change in somebody's body composition and obviously energy balance. Now, with that said, there have been studies that have fixed calorie intake and looked at changes in the distribution of macronutrition. And the example of this I always use was a study by Danielle Yakubovic, published in 2013. And what she did was take overweight and obese women, divide them into two groups for a period of 12 weeks. And they both followed weight loss diets that were matched for calories and macronutrients. And in one group, 
the women consumed half of their daily calories at breakfast and in the other group they consumed half of them at dinner. And over the course of the 12 weeks, the early eaters lost more than twice as much weight, more than twice as many inches off their waists, and had greater improvements in blood sugar and blood lipid regulation. So given that the diet composition hasn't changed, it's fair to assume that it's the change in diet timing that's likely at play there. Regarding the second part of your question, interestingly, when you ask one group of people to consume breakfast, and the study that comes to mind in this instance is some research by James Betts at Bath University, and he did two studies, one on lean adults and a subsequent study on obese adults, and you have another group skip breakfast and then you follow them for several weeks and in this instance it was six weeks, you tend to find that the group that skips breakfast consumes fewer calories each day. In the case of the lean adults, it was something to the tune of about 500 fewer calories each day. But they also moved around less each day such that their physical activity energy expenditure was substantially lower and so at the end of several weeks without any guidance regarding how much food to eat energy balance in two groups was equivalent so the breakfast skippers consumed fewer calories but they also moved around less and one of the questions that i find interesting is whether having breakfast and signing a large proportion of daily calorie intake early in the day could have subsequent effects on physical activity, energy expenditure. Because if you take a physique competitor who is halfway into a diet, who's already quite lean, they are going to be monitoring their physical activity, but they're going to not want to engage in activity as much as they did at the start of the diet necessarily. And that's for various different reasons. And Perhaps if you have that person shift more of their daily calorie intake early in the day, then without realizing it, they will end up fidgeting and perhaps taking more steps more throughout the rest of the day, which could affect energy balance such that they end up losing more fat than they otherwise would have, or at least losing fat at a faster rate at that stage in their diet, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah, there's a few things I think to kind of piece together there. So. For one, you know, the one statement I guess we would say is it seems like you said when taking away breakfast, they did eat less. You were saying about 500 calories less. It's interesting to me that you said the decrease in activity was enough to offset that because a decrease of 500 calories of activity is a pretty substantial amount. I mean, that's that's quite large. It is. Yeah, I completely agree. And something we have to bear in mind here is that the ways that scientists commonly assess physical activity energy expenditure have stark limitations so trying to assess energy expenditure by way of accelerometry or combined accelerometry and heart rate isn't perfect it's not the same as using the gold standard method so we have to bear that in mind when interpreting those studies and i think there's an increasingly strong body of evidence showing that small changes in physical activity don't have such a big effect on total daily energy expenditure as was once assumed. And the person who's done 
a lot of good research on this is Herman Ponser, who's an evolutionary biologist. I think he's at Duke University. I actually interviewed him a couple of years ago for Human OS. But he's got this constrained model of energy expenditure, which sounds like you're very familiar with. But the idea is just that if you take somebody who's completely sedentary and you increase their physical activity, then you will increase their total daily energy expenditure up to a point. There's then this dead zone in which if you keep increasing their physical activity, they won't necessarily burn substantially more calories, although they may experience health benefits due to the way that the energy that they consume is apportioned between their different bodily compartments. But then when you start getting to very high levels of daily energy expenditure by way of very high levels of physical activity, things change once again. So think, for example, of somebody who's an ultra-endurance athlete who's exercising for more than five hours each day. At that point, energy expenditure starts climbing. So I, I take your point. The studies aren't perfect, but the studies that have looked at breakfast consumption versus breakfast skipping in randomized situations have tended to report that the breakfast skippers are, if anything, slightly less physically active, particularly in the morning hours. Right, right. Well, and, and part of that first point was more just to come, like when you look at a few things in, I guess, when you combine a few of these factors. So for one, we're saying that they, at least if we just focus on the caloric intake portion for now, so we'll say, okay, people who do maybe skip breakfast, let's say call that the intermittent fasting group, they tend to eat less throughout the day. However, I, I think in general, we find that people who eat, this is something I saw in, in mass research, um, where people who had breakfast ate less later in the day, and I believe less total calories. Is that also accurate? Because if so, it's, it kind of sounds like counter op- opinions, you know, or counter statements. I think, I think it depends in part on the composition of the breakfast, unsurprisingly. So, for example, there have been several studies showing that when people consume high-protein breakfasts, they will have effects on satiety hormones such that they tend to consume less energy later in the day. So that's an important moderating variable in that instance. Okay. Yeah. Just because I, I think when I have like practical takeaways for somebody, right, it's like, okay, well, you know, I've been told maybe if I eat a bigger breakfast, I'll eat less. But then I've also been told if I skip breakfast, I'll eat less. You know, so a little bit of a counterpoints there. But I, I get what you're saying. And, you know, the studies aren't perfect. And maybe both have been shown different contexts. It, it's kind of hard sometimes to piece it all together. Yeah. And I think that we have to bear in mind that there haven't been studies looking at people who are already very lean. And I know this is something that you pointed out in an Instagram comment and something to consider there is that when you are in that type of state if you've been in a negative energy balance for a prolonged period of time and you've been training hard and you've been very diligent about your lifestyle you're probably finding the whole thing quite taxing and there's this concept of ego depletion, which is a concept which is quite hotly debated in scientific circles. It was put forward first by a guy named Roy Baumeister, but the idea is just that willpower is a finite resource. And if that's the case, then it's understandable why competitors might want to, say, skip breakfast and save food for later in the day, because that way they've 
started to exhaust their willpower early in the day and then later in the day they they have their reward and they find that their compliance with that type of approach is better than having a relatively big breakfast and then later in the day they find themselves disposed to snacking but with that said that's entirely speculation and interestingly there's been some work on relatively short-term early time restricted eating done by Eric Ravison's group last year. And I think they published a subsequent study this year too. But what it showed was that, again, with the caveat that I'm speaking now about overweight people, when people go through just four days of early time restricted eating in which they consume all of their calories within a six hour period each day that finishes by around 3 p.m., counterintuitively, on the fourth day, when they looked at their ghrelin, which is an appetite-promoting hormone secreted by or synthesized by some, cell, some cells in the stomach, they found that ghrelin was perhaps counterintuitively lower over the course of 24 hours, and in particular lower later in the day among the early time-restricted eating condition. And as a result of that, or in relation to that, appetite was also lower at night in people during the early time restricted eating condition. So while you might think that if I finish my final meal of the day by 3 p.m., then by 8 p.m. I'm going to be ravenous, the opposite was the case of anything. And so I mm -hmm. think that it's something that's worth exploring as an individual but there are all sorts of different factors that one has to bear in mind in determining whether it's right. And perhaps the most important of those is just what's practical for your lifestyle. So if you have totally. kids, then you're probably going to want to have dinner with your family because food is perhaps the most widely used way of making time to bond with other important people in one's life. And so I'd never suggest that if, if you're a father right, of right. three, that you, you skip dinner with your family so that you can stick to your early time restricted eating. Right. So there's that. But then another important variable is what somebody's training program looks like. I say training programs, I'm speaking with you, Dave, and I know that you like slinging weights. And if you are someone who trains in the afternoon or the late afternoon in particular, then I, I think that that probably modifies what's best for you in terms of diet timing. Right. Yeah. I mean, practicality is obviously huge. So I, I think when you combine some of the other things we were talking about earlier, you could say, well, if you just have your intermittent fasting window earlier, you kind of get the benefits of both, right? You've cut out a meal and you get the bigger breakfast. Um, not to mention, you know, we're, we'll probably talk a little bit about how you know, you want to keep your food away from sleep at least by a few hours. So it seems like a very good practical way to do it is just have an eating window of maybe, let's say, like 8 in the morning to 4 p.m. if you're going to sleep at like 8 to 10 p.m. Um, and that's actually what I did for a while when I was in college, which, again, going to the practical side of it was very convenient because this way when I'm going out at night, you know, if there's parties or anything like that, I'm not having to bring a protein shake or something. I'm just kind of done at 4 or 5 and it's good. Um, for a while there, then I switched to later because I did like to finish on a bigger meal at the end of the day. Um, and again, though, to your point, you will adapt. I mean, right now it feels because I finished maybe at like 7 or 8 p.m. 
it feels like, oh, I'd be so hungry if I didn't eat. But certainly your body does adapt to a different eating schedule. Um, but right now I'm not doing any sort of, you know, real time restricted eating. I'd say I probably eat about 12 hours of the day. So about 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And part of that, again, just practicality, because I exercise in the morning. So I'm not going to wait until noon to start. But because I work, you know, if I were to the way it would come out to be is if I didn't have my last meal, then I'd be finishing at like 2 p.m. And I just don't want to do that. And sometimes I do have later workouts. So just for my life right now, it's like a 12 hour eating window. And I don't I would imagine, you know, maybe there's small differences compared to, let's say, an eight. But the practicality in my situation is what rules out. Yeah. So there are lots of different things to to explore in those comments once again so i'll try and be somewhat brief but one of them is just that at the level of the individual i think that it's potentially advantageous to change the duration of the caloric period and when i say caloric period what i am referring to is what you call the eating window in accordance with your goals so if you are in a fat loss phase then it makes sense to use a shorter caloric period if you are in a phase in which you're trying to accrue as much muscle tissue as possible then you're going to require more calories and it's going to be easier to consume those calories within a longer caloric period so for somebody who's trying to gain weight i would probably put time restricted eating to one side but still maintain diet time regularity and still emphasize the importance of the distribution of calories within that but so that the person can consume enough calories, the longer caloric period makes sense. So there's that. Another thing that comes up is the timing of the caloric period and eating occasions relative to biological time versus relative to the clock time. And historically, people have said things like don't eat after 6 p.m., which when you stop to think about it is nonsensical because for the early birds among us 6 p.m might be three hours before bedtime and for the night owls among us that might be lunchtime so i always speak about diet timing relative to the sleep wake cycle and as generic guidance you mentioned that you might want to avoid consuming calories too late in the day i generally suggest that people stop consuming any calorie containing items at least two hours before bed There is a little bit of evidence and a rationale to consume a bolus of protein shortly before bedtime if your goal is to maximize skeletal muscle protein balance over the course of the 24-hour period. And Tim Snyder from Luke Van Loon's group did a study on this a few years ago in which they took healthy young guys, put them through a 12-week long resistance training program, and then in one condition the men had a protein supplement shortly before bedtime and in another condition they didn't and over the course of the 12 weeks the protein supplemented group did gain more strength in several exercises and they did accrue slightly more muscle tissue but importantly the addition of the protein supplement did increase their total protein intake such that yeah. in the non-protein supplemented group I think their protein intake was something like 1.3 grams per kilo. And in the protein supplemented group, it was something like 1.9 grams per kilo. Whereas if protein was equated between the two groups, I'm not sure that the researchers 
would have reported that difference. And there have been a couple of subsequent studies looking at elderly men reporting that while the nighttime bolus of protein will stimulate overnight myofibrillar muscle protein synthesis, that doesn't necessarily lead to muscle tissue accrual or additional muscle tissue accrual over the course of a training program in people of that age. So I think yeah, there I think, are still some questions to answer there. Yeah, I, I think that's always important to like actually look into the studies because I'm sure every you know protein supplement company in the world would want to say, hey, you know, if you we have evidence showing that if you add protein at the end of your day, you're going to have more you know, muscle growth and they'll extrapolate that. Um, but to your point, I mean, before you even said it, I assumed that was the case. You know, you're looking at people who have, uh, you know, not low protein, but compared to how a lot of us eat relatively low protein, going to a higher protein intake. Um, and obviously that's going to be a big factor. I mean, there was a study when I had Lane Norton on and they were talking about protein distribution and the conclusion of the study was, well, like having evenly spaced protein was better. And it's like, yeah, but the one group with like the... Um, unevenly distributed protein, one of their meals was like seven grams of protein. And that group had a lot of people working out around that seven gram protein meal. And so, yeah, yeah they showed a little bit uh, lower muscle accretion. And it's like, well, I'm not surprised if you don't have protein for like five hours after your workout. Um, and I know another point would be, I believe there's research showing that there really isn't too much of a difference in muscle mass between a six hour and a 12 hour eating window. <laughs> And so it's kind of hard to say, well, if you drop it from 12 hours to six hours, there's no problem at all, but also have this protein at night. You know what I mean? It's it just kind of, again, counter. Yeah. So again, there, there are a few things in there. Yeah. yeah. One, <laughs> one of them is the distribution of protein. And I haven't spent a lot of time looking at this research for a few years, but I remember a study by Jose Aretta that looked at different distributions and off the top of my head i think that one of the conditions was 10 grams of protein eight times evenly spaced over several hours another condition was 20 grams four times and another was two grams 40 times and that was over an eight hour period and unsurprisingly there's there's a sweet spot in there because at a given meal you probably need a sufficient quantity of protein and in particular the amino acid leucine to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis and there's then a period after that at which high, there's hyperamino acidemia so the concentrations of amino acids in the blood remain elevated above baseline but the amino acids that are being directed into the muscle tissue are at a point at which they can't take up any more amino acids. So that's known as a muscle full effect. And then any subsequent amino acids that are directed at the muscle just end up being oxidized for energy. And so if you then try and stimulate muscle protein synthesis after a bonus of protein that's maximally stimulated previously, you're not going to have any effect on muscle protein synthesis and hence muscle protein balance. If that subsequent bolus of amino acids comes too soon after the first. And so what I'm trying to say is that practically, if you're trying to maximize skeletal muscle protein balance, then you need enough high quality protein at the bolus. And then you probably need to wait something like four hours before the next one. 
And so spacing protein within the caloric period does seem to be important. And then turning to something else that you said, which was comparing different time-restricted eating periods, the person who's done most research on time-restricted eating and resistance training is Grant Tinsley. And he's published maybe four studies or so since 2016, looking at different time-restricted eating interventions in people undergoing resistance training, all relatively healthy young people, sometimes trained, sometimes not. And some of those have used slightly peculiar interventions. So in one of them, for instance, it was resistance training, typical resistance training, and time-restricted eating was only used on rest days, and it was a four-hour period, and it was quite late in the day, and it was ad libitum. So it's a slightly peculiar way of structuring the study. But others use interventions that are very similar to what people typically do in the real world. So comparing time-restricted eating to non-time-restricted eating in conditions in which protein is matched, and to summarize the findings of those studies, what he's generally shown is that time-restricted eating doesn't seem to affect fat-free mass responses to training a great deal. But even in conditions of energy balance, based on diet records and what the people are told to do, it seems that time-restricted eating might lead to greater loss of fat mass than non-time-restricted eating. And he has also looked at things like changes in performance outcomes, and I don't think the results of those are entirely clear. So, for example, in one of the studies, the group that didn't use time-restricted eating gained slightly more muscle mass, although they didn't compare the two groups. It's just the way that the statistics were done, but that's tangential. And in another study, they also found some differences in performance in the exercises such that the time-restricted eating group actually had greater improvements in strength and strength endurance than the non-time-restricted eating group. So there are some slightly difficult to interpret findings there. And then in terms of- Is this supposed to be with calories matched? In that particular instance, I, I think that there wasn't guidance given as to calorie consumption, but I'd have to pull up the study itself in front of me to confirm that. And then finally, they have looked at some endocrine parameters and how those change in response to time-restricted eating. And the time-restricted eating conditions tend to, if anything, lead to slightly lower leptin, slightly lower T3, perhaps slightly lower testosterone and IGF-1. And then potentially some, some changes in, in things like resting energy expenditure too, the, some of which isn't surprising given any changes in fat mass that occur in response to the time-restricted eating interventions. So overall, time-restricted eating doesn't seem to be a bad thing for fat-free mass. It probably doesn't seem to be a bad thing for performance otherwise. I don't think it's either problematic or beneficial but it does seem to support fat mass loss in response to resistance training. And people do also tend to like it and find it quite easy to adhere to. If you look across all the different time-restricted eating studies that have been done to date, adherence is quite good. It's often that people will be able to stick to it for more than 80% of the days in which they're asked to do it, 
which compared to other dietary interventions is encouraging. And people tend to enjoy doing it and feel better when they do it too. Commonly, people report improved subjective well-being in response to time-restricted eating. And if we put the resistance training studies to one side for a second, then there has been a meta-analysis of time-restricted eating studies, and it was published last year, looked at 19 studies and found that if you accumulate all the different studies of time-restricted eating that have been done so far, then you find that people do tend to lose some fat mass, they tend to experience reduced systolic blood pressure, reduced fasting glucose, and reduced triglycerides. And so thinking about the listeners now, if you are, say, at the start of a fat loss phase, simply making some changes to your caloric period, if that's not something you're currently attending to, might be enough to kickstart your progress. And it might make sense to now turn to a discussion of exercise and, and how that might change things, Dave. Yeah, before we jump into exercise, I just want to clarify some points, because um, I've also seen the research showing, you know, these improvements in triglyceride levels, blood glucose, um, blood pressure, things like that. And I guess it depends on the population we're speaking to, because, I mean, for one, you know, I definitely, I mean, again, N equals one here, but when I switched to a time-restricted feeding approach back in like 2011, I mean, I, I noticed no difference in my ability to gain muscle. Um, that first year, I actually gained a little bit more than the previous year, and I'm not saying that's the reason, but if anything, I mean, it certainly didn't hurt. Um, and I, I've never really noticed a difference between that and trying to spread my meals over 14 or more hours. Um, in terms of, again, practical advice for people, I think, I, I don't know if I've seen a lot of evidence to convince me that there's a benefit when calories are matched. I, I tend to think, I mean, maybe there's, there's some, and correct me if I'm just missing the mark here, but I tend to think a lot of that does inherently come from a caloric reduction. I mean, a lot of the changes we see are the same changes we see when we calorically restrict. Now, the average person might not want to count their calories all the time. Um, I, I'd say it's hard to notice small changes sometimes in terms of, you know, oh, well, I had my calories over 14 or 10 hours. Um, but, you know, for the average person, this is why keto works for a lot of people. It's like, well, hey, you know, you just naturally eat less. I think when you're forced to eat all of your food in a six hour window, inherently, I, I think there's going to be less calories consumed. Um, and there was even one study and, you know, you might have this might have been one of the studies you already talked about. But you had mentioned this on the podcast with Steve where um, this isn't a time-restricted feeding, but more of a, a switching it group where a breakfast group, I think you said, lost something like 5.4 kilograms more more weight or more fat. Is that, can you briefly uh, detail that study? Yeah, so that was, I, I think that you're referring to a subsequent study by the same group that I mentioned earlier, Danielle Yukubovics, who looked at adults who have diabetes. And over a period of several weeks, they divided them into two groups. And in one group, they had three meals each day and they had half their calories and half of their carbohydrates, roughly, at breakfast. And in the other group, they had isocaloric and the same number of macronutrients in their diets. And they distributed the energy over five different eating occasions each day, including a relatively late snack, such that there was a small difference in the caloric period between the two groups. But again, the important thing is that energy was consistent between the two groups, as were 
carbohydrate, fat, and protein intakes. And over 12 weeks, what they showed was that in the three-meal condition that had half their calories and half their carbs at breakfast, they lost perhaps five and a half kilos. They also experienced dramatic improvements in their blood sugar, such that I think they spent something like 83% more time within a healthy blood sugar range than the other group. As a result of that, they were able to reduce their use of medications such as insulin and perhaps some others such as metformin too. So that's another instance of simple changes to diet timing having quite potent effects on metabolic health. I'm going to try and persuade you that there is something here, Dave, by mentioning a couple more studies. So one of them was done by Courtney Peterson's group, 2018, took overweight middle-aged men who have prediabetes and they crossed them over between two conditions. And both conditions lasted for five weeks and there were seven weeks between them. And in one condition, they went through early time restricted eating and that entailed consuming all calorie containing items between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. each day. And in the other condition, they spread them out between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. So in the first one that I mentioned, that's early time restricted eating. In the other one, that's not really time restricted eating, it's sort of borderline. And what they found was that when they made sure that people didn't change their body mass, so I think they actually ended up having to give the early time restricted eating condition more calories to make sure they didn't lose any weight, they did still experience some improvements to insulin sensitivity, measures of oxidative stress, and to blood pressure. And the degree to which morning blood pressure dropped was quite dramatic. It dropped by 10 millimeters of mercury, which is an effect size that's comparable to that of hypotensive drugs such as ACE inhibitors. And then the reasons for all of these effects are manifold. So I mentioned diet-induced thermogenesis earlier, but one of them relates to changes in oral glucose tolerance over the course of the day. Frank Shear and Chris Morris published a really interesting paper five years ago, which looked at the relative effects of the behavioral cycle versus the circadian cycle in determining oral glucose tolerance. And what they showed was that during the biological morning, so at around 8 a.m., glucose tolerance is about 17% higher than it is during the biological nighttime at about 8 p.m. And one of the reasons for that seems to be that the pancreas is more sluggish at kicking out insulin in response to a meal in the biological nighttime, which probably in part relates to melatonin. And so when you add that up over time, you're likely to see improved glycemic control in people who assign more of their calories early, which might help explain those findings that I mentioned in the Yakubovic's 2019 paper. And so all of these different studies and people who aren't particularly healthy that do control for things like calorie consumption or even make sure that people don't change their body weight by changing calorie consumption in response to changes in body weight over time do support the idea that simply changing the timing of meals independent of variables such as calorie intake or energy balance does have positive effects on metabolic regulation. So great points. <laughs> um, I would say the one where they match or they make them hold their body weight, basically allow no changes in body weight. That's, that's one of the more interesting ones. When you say that they control for calories, and I, and I actually don't know the answer to this, how 
well controlled are these studies? It always depends on the study in question, but typically in some studies they will actually be given meals. So they'll have all of their meals provided for them during the intervention, which is very costly. Mm-hmm. And in other circumstances where the researchers don't have such big budgets, they might use something more crude than that, but they might prescribe people diets and then use diet recalls or diet records to assess their diets over the course of the study to check for whether people are complying with the recommendations. Right. And I mean, and look, I, I, I certainly understand that, you know, you can't set up a metabolic ward for all these studies and, and you know, give all of these meals. I mean, it'd be very, very costly. Um, it's just when I hear something like, and to be clear, I actually, I do believe that there are probably some significant metabolic benefits. Like it makes sense to me that, you know, blood glucose response, um, things like that would be better in the morning. Um, and that you could have health benefits from a smaller eating window. I've seen, you know, I, I saw something that I thought was kind of unusual with uh, Walter Longo, who does some like fasting research. And he was talking about, um, you know, the, the perfect time is 12 hours because, you know, too much is this. And he said like six hours, there's all this risk of, you know, like gallbladder issues and everything. And, and I, I just didn't think, yeah, like I, I just kind of shook my head similarly and thought that just seems kind of silly to me. Um, but so I would say, I, I do think there are some health benefits, but when I hear something like, you know, a five over 12 weeks, a five and a half kilogram difference between the same calories and, you know, just having it in the morning or later in the evening, I, I have to think that there was an actual difference in caloric intake there that was not being picked up. I mean, we, we know how poor um, the consistency with food logs is and, you know, people's <laughs> recall and things like that. And, and five and a half kilograms, I mean, that, that's, you're talking about an additional pound per week, more or less, over mm-hmm. that 12 week study. I've never seen any well-controlled study document that, um, that much of a difference with the same calories. So for something like that, I would, I would think maybe there were some issues with the control. You know what I'm going to say, Dave? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm being difficult, but you should read the studies and, and see what you make of them and, yeah. and, and, try and try and pick them apart and then gain a sense of what you feel about them. But what I will say is that I spent a lot of time during my PhD. Unfortunately, nowadays, I don't have nearly as much time to look at research as I once did looking at these studies. And I went into my PhD not thinking that diet timing was particularly important. And now I think that it is very important in certain instances. And for everybody, it is somewhat important. Mm-hmm. I think the, the relative importance changes according to numerous different things. So as one example of this, if you're a shift worker, I think that it might be more important than it otherwise would be. As another example of this, if you are, and I doubt that you are if you're listening to this, very poor, and that dramatically affects how much money you can spend on food and therefore the quality of your diet, then I think that changing your diet timing is something that you can do and is likely to be particularly helpful for you. Whereas if you are someone who's already lean, you exercise a lot, the quality of your nutrition at baseline is good, you're consuming lots of lean proteins, fruits and vegetables, nuts and so on, then I think that 
it's going to be less important for you. And what I'll also say is that while much of what I've said so far is focused on people who aren't metabolically healthy and and the merit of time-restricted eating in improving parameters such as blood sugar regulation, there are instances among healthy people and athletes in particular in which you actually want to have the opposite effects. So take the instance of somebody training twice a day. If you're training twice a day and you're training the same body part at both training sessions and you want to try and maximize recovery between the sessions because you are a strength athlete, a power athlete, or a physique athlete, then you might want to try and get carbs into your muscle as quickly as possible post-workout. And so that type of thing is an important factor because one thing that I sometimes speak about is the fact that just the sequence of different macronutrients within a meal does have an influence on postprandial or after eating responses to that meal, such that if you take people who have prediabetes or diabetes and you feed them carbohydrate first and then protein, fat and fiber 10 to 15 minutes later, their blood sugar responses and their insulin responses over the three hours thereafter are dramatically worse. In fact, if you look at the incremental area under the curve of glucose, it's probably likely something like 40 to 70% higher if they consume the carbs first. But for the bodybuilder who's doing two sessions a day, he's trying to shuttle carbs into his hamstrings before his second leg session, it can be quite helpful putting the carbohydrates first in that post-workout meal after the morning session, for instance. So you can you can take this knowledge of chrononutrition and you can apply it for different ends according to your particular goals. So I mentioned earlier the person who's trying to gain weight, for that person a longer caloric period makes sense and maybe some night, nighttime protein might have some bearing on their daily protein intake and thereby support their ability to build muscle mass over time. And then much of what I've said so far is focused on the utility of assigning most of daily carbohydrate and fat intake early in the day, but that's in a condition in which exercise is controlled for, or people aren't given any guidance about exercise whatsoever, or these people are relatively sedentary. If you're somebody who trains in the biological afternoon, so let's say that you work out after heading home from the office, at 6 p.m. each day, then obviously exercise has all sorts of effects on metabolic regulation. It increases non-insulin-mediated glucose uptake as one example. And that time of day for strength power exercise is probably a, about optimal in terms of your circadian biology and how well you will perform acutely during that session. So your training time is optimized. And if you've just gone to the gym and you've put in an hour and 15 minutes doing several multi-joint exercises for several sets of eight to 12 reps, then I think that it's a smart thing to have a substantial proportion of your daily carb intake in particular post-workout if one of your goals is to speed your recovery as quickly as possible. For sure. Yeah. And, and I definitely don't, you know, I think there are some camps where they act like the only thing that matters is calories or the only thing that matters is like your macros or something like that. Right. I mean, I think 
you get camps that go too far in one direction. Or just because calories might be the most or one of the most important things doesn't mean that nothing matters. Or just because, you know, if it fits your macros works doesn't mean, and, you know, I, I think it's almost a meme to say like the whole like pop tarts things with if it fits your macros. I don't think most people actually try to fill their day with like as nutrient poor foods as possible. But, you know, just because we have maybe the top tier of importance doesn't mean that these other things don't matter. And I do think, especially from a health standpoint, uh, the timing can play a significant role. Yeah. And I know that some people have tried to come up with hierarchies as to what's most important in terms of nutrition. And I think that I've never, I've never said this. I've never really thought about it, to be honest. But I think that the hierarchy differs massively from one person to the next. You have to meet people where they're at. And when you're thinking about diet changes to make, there are several different things that you need to consider. So one is, can the person actually make the change? So do they have the ability to make the change? Do they have the requisite knowledge and so on? Another is, if they make this change, what's going to be the impact of the change on the end point in question, be that accumulating muscle mass or shedding fat mass? And then another is, what are the knock-on effects of this change going to be in terms of other health behaviors? So I mentioned earlier that one of the great things about time-restricted eating is that people tend to inadvertently improve their diet composition too. So as one change to make, which is sustainable based on the data that have been published so far, it's fantastic. So when I help people with their nutrition, I find myself often gravitating to one of a handful of different nutrition interventions to make. And so one of those is increasing protein intake for people listening to this that's probably not something they need to do necessarily but for the non-bodybuilding crowd that can be really helpful in terms of appetite regulation body composition and so on another is using time-restricted eating another might be consuming vegetables every meal just as just as three examples so when, when we speak about the relative importance of these different things in my mind it overrides the complexities that are involved in changing behavior and if people want more information about that then i direct them straight to the work of a lady named susan mickey at ucl who has her combi model capability opportunity motivation model of behavior change and she's done several systematic reviews on different interventions to change behaviors and there are lots of them more than 90 of them that have been regularly studied in the context of health behavior change specifically. And so when people speak very simplistically about these things, I think much of the time, it just betrays the fact that they're not familiar with the nuances of what they're talking about. And when you speak with people who are quite widely read, they they can understand the merits and how to apply these different things in different contexts. And the fact that all of this stuff is important, the relative importance is different for different people and for a given individual the relative importance changes over time for sure yeah no it's great and i think it's funny you know you said you're giving me a hard time but to me you know my most boring podcast to me at least are like when i know the person i know everything like that they think and we agree on everything you know it's just kind of like all right come on we'll just talk for the audience versus like an actual back and forth discussion so uh, to me at least i i enjoy it for sure um only other thing i wanted to ask you about was 
as far as like just GI health, and I know like that specifically might not be your area of expertise, but I know when I was bulking up last time, probably about a year ago, I started implementing one 24 hour fast per week just because I wanted the break. Like I do have some pretty significant GI issues. And so it was just a nice break for me. Um, other than that, are you aware of anything like other than the, just the, the break from food, are there any potential benefits there? It hasn't been well studied and it's really interesting. And I think that there are clear applications of chrononutrition in the management of gastrointestinal disorders. So I'll preface it by saying that I think that time-restricted eating does make sense because you are in training certain clocks in your body to anticipate certain things at certain times of day. And instead of having one 24-hour fast each week, just having a period without food that occurs at regular times from one day to the next can be really helpful. I've seen that a little bit in some of the work that I do with individuals, and I know that a lot of other people report that. It also makes sense in terms of the fact that the circadian system does influence the function of the gastrointestinal system at several different levels. So for example, the migrating motor complex that pushes indigestible food through a section of the GI tract proceeds more than twice as quickly in the morning than it does at night, which is one of the reasons why most people get danger pants in the morning if at any time right. of day. But then there are changes and things like electrolytes and macronutrient uptake according to time of day. There are quite clear roughly 24 hour cycles in the composition of the gut microbiota. So when you start to put these things together, I think that it makes sense that chrononutrition will be helpful for these people. I just don't think that it's possible to be very prescriptive right now. And I also have the impression that a lot of gastrointestinal disorders aren't particularly well understood. Take the example of IBS. You look at the symptoms list for IBS and, right. and it's a very, very long shopping list. It's a shopping list for a family of 20 for about four weeks. So when you consider that, I think, watch this space. I'm keen to see what research comes out in years to come. I also think that short time restricted eating periods will be contraindicated for certain people because of gastrointestinal issues. So interestingly, there have been a couple of studies that have reported that when people use quite short caloric periods, so say four hours each day, they might be more prone to constipation over time than when they spread out their feeding more. So I don't think that shorter equals better. That mm. makes a great snippet. And yeah. <laughs> and I think that in summary it needs to be much better studied as a topic for sure for sure yeah I mean it's an area that I'm interested in and I would agree like there's there's some research on it not a ton uh and so dude I want to appreciate I appreciate you coming on today can you tell us a little bit before you go about this product of yours about the uh, resilient nuts and resilient nutrition yeah absolutely Resilient nutrition is something that came of some work that I was doing with my friend and colleague and co-founder of Resilient Nutrition, Ali. Last year, we were helping two guys get ready to row the Atlantic. And as you imagine, if there are 200 kilo plus dudes rowing round the clock for weeks at a time, they get through a lot of calories. And so they needed calorie dense, easy to digest products 
that would support their health and resilience along the way and that would be stable during those types of inclement conditions and it will be lightweight because the total mass that they have on board is a determinant of their performance. So we made up some prototypes of our first product, which is named Long Range Fuel for them. And we don't take any credit for this, but they did really well. They broke the world record. And we started using Long Range Fuel products in different contexts too. Ali is an ultra endurance athlete and he had been fed up from gastrointestinal problems, ironically, over the years, consuming carbohydrate gels and sports drinks and so on. And so he started using them in other endurance contexts. He's an ultra endurance runner just for shits and giggles from time to time. And we've had great feedback from other types of athletes. And personally, I often use the products for knowledge work. I actually consume some long range fuel shortly before this, Dave. So I'm... <laughs> If I'm making sense, then I'm going to chalk it up to the long-range fuel, obviously. If I'm not making sense, then it's got nothing to do with it. And basically, over time, we refine the formulations of them and then launch them. So what is long-range fuel? It's a really tasty nut-butter-based product that uses clinically proven doses of active ingredients to help people be calm and resilient and to support performance both acutely and chronically in both cognitive and physical tasks, which sounds like a lot. But I think that the energized products, which contain added caffeine and L-theanine, are ideal at the start of a long working day or before workouts or during very long ultra-endurance exercise. The calm products, which contain KSM-66 ashwagandha, are well suited to those times when you're feeling a bit worked up, but they're also useful to support adaptations to training in the regular consumption of ashwagandha has been shown to boost cardiorespiratory fitness and to speed the rate at which people gain muscle mass and strength in response to resistance training. And then both the energized products and the calm products are also available with added whey protein isolate and L-leucine. And I touched on L-leucine earlier, but those products are ideal as meal replacements and are also helpful post-exercise and during very long exercise in which amino acid oxidation contributes relatively more to energy requirements during exercise. And a couple more things to add are that we try and do some good along the way. And I don't know a great deal about sustainability, although I'm, I'm trying to learn. And we, we try and have a net positive effect on the environment. We're careful in how we source our ingredients. We don't use palm oil. We avoid using plastic whenever possible. So products available in aluminium pouches, which are ideal on the go, or glass jars. And we also give a fixed proportion of our sales to a charity that works with governments and communities in tropical countries to help them protect their rainforests and thereby protect biodiversity and mitigate climate change. And I'm really excited about some of the products that we have in the pipeline, which many of which are very relevant to people listening to this. So watch this space, but the products right now are available in Europe Hopefully we'll make it over to North America. It's just a little bit difficult with the COVID-19 pandemic and Brexit and all that malarkey. Right. Um, I was going to say, man, I got the uh, cart pulled up right now. I got some nice, uh, what is it, cinnamon and cashew flavor 
ready to go. And I, if I'm in North Macedonia, I can get it, but I can't get in the United States. <laughs> that actually is Steve Hall's favorite product. Oh yeah. Interestingly. Yeah. But yeah, I'm sorry about that. But the website is resiliencenutrition.com and the products are available there, but also over time, I'm really keen to try and give people helpful information aimed at improving their nutrition. So for example, I recently wrote an ebook, which is called Principles of Resilient Nutrition, which will be available for people who subscribe to our newsletter shortly, hoping to release that within the next few weeks. And that goes into some of the things that we've discussed today, among many other nutrition related subjects too. And so we are trying to share some information which is based on science, which we think is practical and can help people feel and perform a bit better. Awesome, man. Well, I will, of course, have links to everything down the show notes. And again, I appreciate you coming on. Pleasure. Thanks, Dave.